0: I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes I'm watching a movie, and uh, you know, after the kids are in bed, and uh, depending on how much time we have left, depending on how bedtime goes, right? Depends on the length of movie. Usually we get to watch, but you know, sometimes you're watching a movie, and and you're just waiting for that movie to end, and you're thinking at some point. The hero has to emerge at some point the plot the conflict whatever has to end they have to tie this up sometime right i don't know Uh, maybe you've watched the movie castaway and so tom hanks his character he he works for fedex his plane goes down he lands on an island and we spend the next two hours learning how to make fire and, and drinking water from a coconut and, and different things like that. And you're thinking, he gets off the island, right? I mean, eventually? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, they, they had to do something, right? So then they introduce another supporting character. And that supporting character is a volleyball. <laughs> Tom Hanks is a great guy, castaway great movie i guess if you like waiting for for the ending to come maybe you've read a book the same way maybe your life feels the same way maybe you're waiting for when the the hero will emerge or maybe you're waiting for when jesus will come back because right now the midst of the conflict the midst. Uh, in the midst of, of, of struggle, in the midst of problems, you're waiting for Jesus to come back. See, if we view Scripture as one narrative of God's story redeeming his people from Genesis to Revelation, in, in my perspective, from my view, when I look at Scripture, I see two key climactic events in all of human history. The first was the resurrection. That Jesus came the first time, right? Came, lived his life, a sinless life, went to the cross. He died, was buried, and creation waited in this tension for the resurrection. Single greatest moment in human history. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Good. I'm glad somebody. Um, The second Hasn't happened yet. The second is when Christ returns. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You can turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19. And if you're using one of those Bibles on the seat with you, it's page 1141. As we go through our our passage this morning, we have a lot to cover. And um, I want us to come away with this idea That a proper perspective leads to proper worship. In that if we have a proper understanding, if we view Jesus properly based on the revelation of Jesus Christ here in the book of Revelation and through scripture, that that will change our perspective on how we are to worship him. So we're going to look at three key ideas that support this idea that a proper perspective leads to proper worship. Now, last week, and as we've been going through the book of Revelation, Dave has, last week, set us up really, really great. Babylon has fallen, fallen. Not just fallen once, but fallen, fallen. It's done. Babylon is done. That that self-made religion, that self-serving commerce is done with. It's no longer around. It's been defeated. God has taken care of that, right? That air that we breathe. Uh, He talked about. And so that sets us up now for what John begins with here in chapter 19. When when John says, after this, I heard. And so what John describes in the first part here of 19 are a series of hallelujahs and, and one praise the Lord. Now, in all of the New Testament, we only ever see the word hallelujah in the book of Revelation. Hallelujah means praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. So when John writes about what he hears from the great multitude in heaven, hallelujah, hallelujah, amen, hallelujah, praise our God, he's saying praise the Lord. That's what hallelujah means. And what we're praising the Lord, what what this great multitude is praising God for is God's righteous judgment, that God is true that God is doing what is right, that God is holy, and that we are to give him worship. His justice is righteous. And so then we start here in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Are the true words of God? Let's pause there for a moment. You know, as we look at earlier chapters in scripture, there's there's description of the prostitute, which represents, you know, faithless, you know, those that have not remained faithful to God. We have the the great prostitute. Here we have the bride of Christ. Stark difference. Stark difference. And in our American culture, particularly, we talk about, you know, when we go to weddings, it's all about the bride. She is the focal point as she walks down the aisle. I'm sure a lot of the ladies, I don't necessarily think this way, but what's, what is she wearing? What's her dress going to look like, right? We have TV shows about the dress, right? And so it's, it's about the bride. It's about seeing what the bride is going to be wearing. And here... John describes for us what he sees as the bride of Christ, that is the church, those that are followers of Jesus, that is the the bride of Christ, the church, the bride is clothed in fine linen, bright and pure. It's been granted to her to clothe herself in bright linen, in fine linen, bright and pure, granted her because of the grace of God. See, because of Jesus' sacrifice, which is the grace that he has given to us, that we are then able to do what? Good deeds. And that is what that fine linen is. It says, John writes, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Reminds me of what Paul writes in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is those good works that Paul writes about in his letter to the Ephesians that over the course of time that are now what clothed by God's grace, the bride of Christ. That is what shines. is the good deeds of the church. It's the, that is what shines as the bride appears. And it's quite a sight. But the bride isn't the focus in this passage. We see the bride. We see the bride looking bright and brilliant and fine linen. But we're waiting for the bridegroom to come. The bridegroom is the focal point here. Now, John talks a little bit here in in verse 10. He He says, and I think it's interesting that John includes this, um, but John says, then I fell down at his feet to worship. So after he's, he's seen the bride of Christ there with the righteous deeds of the saints, he says, then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now imagine this, John, his life, right? He, he was, wrote this around the year 95 AD. The very start, the very early portion, very early history of the church. Now he's looking ahead. He sees the future. God shows him the future of the church, the bride of Christ, with all the good deeds. And he falls on his face in worship. I think... I would probably do the same thing, that to see how the church has grown just this year. Number of those have come to faith in Christ that become part of the church that become the bride of Christ. That number he sees in heaven in this vision and then to see the good works of what the church has done, because he's at the early part of the church. Church is relatively small compared to what John is seeing. And then to be so overwhelmed to see not just the size of the church, but to see all the good deeds the church has done over thousands of years has got to be incredible, breathtaking, overwhelming. And he falls on his face in worship, though misdirected. I I can't blame him. To think of all the folks that not just have come to faith in Christ, but think of all the, the homeless that the church has helped to reach. Think of the orphans all around the world. Think of you know, the counseling. The help that the church has provided. Over thousands of years. John sees those good deeds. Over time. We can't count them. Think of every good deed that you have done. In Jesus name. As a follower of Jesus. John sees that. Here as the bride of Christ. And it's those good deeds by God's grace. That clothe the bride of Christ. And John falls on his face. This is where I think we learn the first part of our idea about proper perspective that leads to proper worship. And that is that we see Jesus as the bridegroom full of grace. That he is the bridegroom, but he is full of grace. And it's by God's grace that we are able to do anything. We are able to do those good deeds that he has set out for us to do by God's grace. See, just as we cannot measure the depth and the penalty and the separation of sin, of our sin, and how far it separates us from God, we also cannot measure the depth and measure of God's grace in our lives. And it's by God's grace that we are able to be a part of his family, to be a part of, to be this bride that is presented bright and pure, And in fine linen, redeemed, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ's sacrifice and his death. And this is the culmination of that. This is sort of the the celebration of all of that as the bride and the groom come together. And so the stage is set. The bride's ready. We're waiting for the bridegroom to show up. And so let's read on here in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood with the name, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, bright and pure, were following him on white horses, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the very scene that the Jewish people were expecting when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a day that we call palm sunday they were waiting for the messiah to show up on a horse with an army behind him to conquer the roman empire that's what they were looking forward to and instead he came in on a donkey and then went to the cross But this scene, this is where Christ comes in victorious. This is where he comes in on the white horse. You know, in in the Roman Empire, when after they would go out to battle, the the emperor or the general would show up on on a white horse. Napoleon is oftentimes depicted on a white horse as a victorious horse. We come in after a battle. And here Christ shows up on a white horse. This is the second coming of Christ. And so he shows up, and John describes the names of Jesus. He he lists them out for us that we have what? We have faithful and true. He has a name that no one knows, and we'll talk about that in a second. We have the Word of God, he's called. He's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One commentator said that that name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, that's his victorious name. He's not just coming to rule while there's other kings, perhaps. But he's coming to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Such a difference. Such a difference. This um, name that is written, I think, is very interesting. Uh, Jesus was the name that was given to him when he came to earth as a child. That was the name that the angel said to Mary, that you shall call him Jesus. But Jesus, being part of the Trinity, has always existed. So in eternity past, or in Genesis, when God says, let us make man in our own image, what, what was Jesus' name then? Jesus was his name when he came to earth. It kind of blows your mind a little bit when you think about that. But that, what I believe, is the name that is written that is, that is unknown, that only he knows is that name. But John goes through this description. He talks about Jesus' eyes and how his eyes are like flames of fire. Searching judgment, he sees all. No one can escape judgment. Nobody can escape. Jesus sees everything. His crowns, those diadems, uh, symbolize his magnificent rule and his sovereignty and his majesty. Talks about his robe dipped in blood. Not his own. That's to be the, the conquest of his enemies. He comes through untouched. They've got no match on him. And then, the sword, the word of God, like His comes out of his mouth. It reminds me of the, the armor of God that we see in Ephesians. Or what the writer of Hebrews says about the word, of, the word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division, I can't see that, of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. The word of the Lord is what pierces through the heart and divides and is how judgment comes. We'll see that in just a second. So after John describes the scene of Jesus showing up, there's this there's this couple of verses here where an angel shows up and, and an angel invites the birds, if you you read that there in verses 17 and 18, it's a a forecast of the outcome to come. Where it's basically saying, birds of prey, be ready, there's going to be flesh. It's very grim, very um, disturbing almost, but it it shows the, the completeness of the judgment. So now, verse 19 Who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The beast and the false prophet are taken care of, thrown into the lake of fire, and the rest are slain by the word of the Lord. Just as God can speak life, the word of the Lord can also bring judgment to the wicked. The dead are left for the birds. There's too much for them. They're gorged on their flesh. There's no more the birds can eat. And this is Christ who comes as a righteous ruler to bring judgment. Too often times, I don't think we've really seen, we might have seen glimpses of a righteous ruler. Maybe Abraham Lincoln or some folks like that where we view them as perhaps a a righteous ruler, but to really see a sinless, righteous ruler Ruler, we've never seen that. And here Jesus is. He is the righteous and sinless ruler. So the second thing that we learn about a proper perspective that leads to proper worship is that Jesus is the righteous and just conqueror. He conquers not just sin and death, which he did at his first coming, but now he conquers the enemy. He conquers the wicked. And that's what we see here. So now we have the battle, the final battle. Battle and the foretold kingdom, and John picks this up here in verse twenty or chapter twenty. He, John says this, and then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, the beast and the false prophet are taken care of. They're throwing the lake of fire. You come to this, these couple of verses, and you're probably thinking, like, like I sometimes will think, Lord, why, why don't you just throw Satan into the lake of fire and be done with it? Why throw him into the pit only to release him again? I mean, that kind of sounds like, what, what are you doing there? I think the reason is because God is trying to prove a point to us as human beings. And that is that when Satan is removed from the earth and placed in the bottomless pit, that we'll see in the next section that even still with Satan not on the earth, able to influence human beings, we will still, human beings will still choose to reject God. That's, I think, a very key point. We, the human beings, we, man will no longer have an opportunity to blame it on Satan. Oh, well, Satan, you know, he, he deceived me. Well, Satan's no longer there. He's in the bottomless pit. And the sinful nature that we have will still be a default setting to reject God. I think that's why. We'll see a little bit more here, here as, we, as we continue. I think it's also interesting to note that um, it's not... Jesus that throws Satan into the pit it's the angel who comes with the keys see Satan has no power none when it comes to Jesus and those that are on his side Jesus could have done it himself Satan I don't have time for you you're already defeated angel could you take care of that for me Jesus has that power And Satan has none when it comes to Jesus. Verse 4, chapter 20. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. This is what we call the millennial kingdom. And so... Over that period of time, we're not going to really try to figure out who those people are that are ruling with authority. We're not going to dig into that and try to figure that out. But the idea here is that Christ is ruling on earth for a period of, what well, the text says, a 1,000 years. Now, there are uh, various ways to interpret this passage. And over this span and it, of this Thousand year reign here, we have those 10 words, right? And they will reign with him for a thousand years. 10 words, we cover a thousand, uh, 10 words, we cover a thousand years. But there's three ways to really interpret this passage, three different views. The first is amillennialism, a meaning no or not millennium. So no millennium. And these folks believe that there is no millennium. No physical thousand years. That the thousand years is a figurative language, figurative uh, wording that is it's not actually a thousand years, it just means a long time. And so they believe that that is happening now, that the thousand year reign, this, this kingdom, is, is present day, is happening right now. One, uh, put this, one commentator put it this way Umlinists believe that the thousand years in Revelation 20 is figurative, showing that the reign of Christ from heaven is presently happening is presently being fulfilled in the church age and will continue until Christ returns. So that's one view. The second view is post-millennialism. And that uh, view holds that we have the church age, present time. Then the millennium will happen, the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign. And then after that thousand years, that's when Christ will return. So the millennium at that point, uh, Christ is ruling, but not presently on the earth. But there's this gospel process where the majority of the world, majority of the world is obedient to him, but he's not presently on the earth. That's the second view. The third view is premillennialism. And folks who uh, believe, interpret the passage this way, believe that you have the present age, the church age, then you have a time of judgment, and then Christ returns, and then we go into the millennium and he rules for a thousand years. And then we get into eternity after that. Okay. So three major views of how to interpret these verses here regarding the millennial kingdom. Personally, I don't think, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound flippant, but I don't think it matters. We're going to figure it out right? I mean we 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 don't know the future. We only know what scripture reveals to us. But whether we die first and then figure it out after our death or if Christ returns while we're here still on earth, we'll figure it out then too. I mean, we all know, right, that Jesus isn't on the earth right now. Right? He's not physically on the earth. So we'll figure it out. I mean, you can hold to one of these views and I hold to one of these views predominantly. Uh, but in the end, I don't think that should change how we live our lives. I think that regardless of the sequence of events that scripture details out for us for the future, we still have a job to do. And that job is a great commission. is to share the gospel, to continue in those good deeds that God has preordained for us to do, like we read about in Ephesians, and those good deeds that John writes about that the bride of Christ is clothed in. It doesn't change what we do or what we're supposed to be doing. We still have a job to do as followers of Jesus. And so regardless of how we interpret this passage, the big idea, Jesus is coming back. I really hope for a couple more amens on that one, but um, that's, that's all right. That's all right. Um, But Jesus is coming back. And so, again, regardless of how we interpret this, there are are ways, you know, those three views and some other variations of those views. Jesus is coming back, and we have a job to do as followers of Christ. So, but the enemy still has to be dealt with for good. So let's read from what John has here in verse 7, chapter 20. And when the thousand years were ended, just like that, we covered a thousand years worth of human history. um, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay. So again, you know, Satan is no match. But he's not going to give up without a fight. And so again, once he's released, he's now going to gather people. This is still, remember, under the millennial kingdom. Still with Christ ruling, he's still going to gather people together to fight against the armies of God, to come against him, and they're going to try to surround the city. And we believe that city to be Jerusalem. He's still going to try it. He's still going to think that he's going to get somewhere. Talk about the deceiver, maybe the deceived, right? He still thinks he's got a shot, but he doesn't. And so with the armies surrounding the people of God, God sends fire down from heaven, consumes them like that, and it 's over, and Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is a real place. the lake of fire is a real place, and it, it sometimes we see sometimes I, I find I, I encounter different people you know um, who aren 't you know from church or um, folks out in the community or when i 'm traveling or whatever they, Sometimes it's easier for those who don't follow Jesus. Sometimes easier for people to believe in hell, or at least come to accept that hell's a place, rather than believe that there is a God. I mean, we joke. People joke about hell, right? You know, we're, we're gonna go, you know, in the movies or whatever. Let's give them hell. Or hey, you know what? You know, I'll see you in hell. It's not a joke tormented day and night, forever and ever. The lake of fire is a very real place. And those who do not know Jesus, that is where they end up. With Satan, with the enemy, that is what scripture says. So our job, please, church, our job as the church of Jesus Christ is to give the gospel, to share our faith, to live our lives as followers of Jesus in every aspect of what we do so that there's less people in hell. A friend of mine, Nate Corpy, he, he uses this phrase, and I've heard him say it several times. Let's make heaven crowded. Please. We have a job to do, and that job is to share our faith, to live our lives as followers of Jesus, to tell people about the gospel, to do those good deeds that he has given us to do. Because hell is a real place, and Christ is coming. We don't know when. We don't know how much longer Jesus will wait before He comes back. So we' better get going. The Timothy Initiative and the Joshua Project, they work out there to, to measure and to, to count the number of people groups that are in the world. And they have a number of about 7,000 people groups that are unreached, unreached or unengaged, where there's no sustaining gospel presence at all. And some believe, based on Matthew 24, 14, where, where Jesus says this, Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Among mission circles and among churches and pastors and in the missions community this verse comes up all the time as our job this is our goal our goal as followers of not just missionaries as followers of jesus is to share the gospel so that every nation and nation is probably not a great word to use here as translated it really the word in the greek is ethne people groups dialects not city, state, lines that have borders, but groups of people. And according to how we read, Matthew 24, 14, Jesus will not return until every people group, every ethne, to the, all the ethne will have heard the gospel. If there are 7,000 out there. We still got work to do. We still have work to do as followers of Jesus to share our faith. Now, Jesus can come at any time. But if we read this passage in light of scripture, in context throughout all of what Jesus has to say, we still have work to do. Our third point about proper perspective that leads to proper worship is that Jesus is the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords. Every knee will bow and tongue confess one day that Jesus is Lord. The wicked will be dealt with. Satan will be dealt with. He will be gone. He will be defeated. He will have met his punishment. As we view Jesus as the great conquering king, king of kings and lord of lords and the gracious bridegroom, we have a job to do. Yes, our job is to worship him. Yes, our job is to tell others of our faith, to gather together in biblical community, but there are lost people out there and it's our job to share the gospel with them. Jesus is coming back. Let's get to work. Let's pray. Lord, we look forward to the day when you return to make this fallen world right. But, Lord, until you come, I ask that you would give us the strength to be followers of you, to be those lights in the darkness. And wherever those circles are, whether it's at work, around the Keurig, or whether it's, you know, we're we're at the grocery store, whether we're, you know, at daycare, wherever it is, Lord, dropping the kids off, that we would be lights, that others would see something in us, and want to be part of that, and Lord, that we would have the freedom and and the the confidence in you to share our faith and to share the gospel. Lord, may you use this church here at Grace Point to relocate maybe or to 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 get people out of that direction of heading towards hell, Lord, but by the power of your gospel, by your grace in our lives, use us, Lord, to to fill heaven. Lord, I, I pray for those that might be here in this room who have questioned maybe whether or not hell's a real place, have questioned God's grace in their lives, have questioned whether Jesus is real and whether or not the gospel's for them. Lord, may they hear your voice. May they feel the nudge of your Holy Spirit, Father, that, that you love them. They cannot fix this themselves. That the gap, the separation of their sin is so great that only you can bridge the gap. Lord, may they put their faith and trust in you. May they confess their sin, that they, they are lost without you, God. And then may they come to trust you as their Savior. And to be the Lord of their lives, Lord, it's, uh, that they might just have this relationship to be entered into your family. God, to be part of the bride of Christ and to be used by you for good deeds. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is victor over sin, that Satan is already defeated. But that doesn't mean he gives up. Lord, help us. Watch over us. Give us the strength that in Jesus' name, Satan has no power. Lord, we thank you again for your grace. And as we look towards Thanksgiving, Lord, may we just be eternally grateful for your grace, your mercy, your love, your blessings in our lives, Lord, because it's all from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, the victor, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.